Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. I noticed at lunchtime uh, when I walked around uh, and talked to some of you that people seem so joyful. I forgot that we were in Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, this is our last afternoon together. Uh, For some of you, this may be a great relief (laughs) that you can finally go back to your old way of practicing. Um, And for others, uh, of course, it's always so sad because uh, we get to know each other, get to go deep, and then we have to say goodbye. Um. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So good. Yeah. So um, this afternoon, I thought instead of starting with the meditation practice, we can look at the text a little more, and then during the meditation practice, are you okay behind me? And during the meditation practice, we can um, explore what the text is saying. So who was not here yesterday? Who was not here yesterday? One, two, three, a few people. Um, oh, and I didn't ask, are there any burning questions that we have to address before we go forward? Okay, so um, let me start by reading um, from a different text. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, what are your thoughts about Ashtanga Yoga, the Ujjayi breathing? Yeah. Uh, because the mindfulness, natural breathing, is it... Um, yeah, when, when we're practicing pranayama in asana, then we're practicing pranayama. And when we're practicing a meditation practice, we don't manipulate our breathing. And during the day, you don't manipulate your breathing. And usually, it's, it should be very calming for your nervous system. Yeah. Um, but one of the problems is that students who do Ashtanga yoga for a long time and don't learn meditative practices where you leave your breath alone can actually create a setting for their breathing that's really not helpful for their nervous system where their nervous system is very upregulated. They're a little bit 
too turned on. Yeah. And um, so I actually, there's sometimes I teach and with certain students who have a lot of anxiety or people who have asthma, I often don't teach them Ujjayi Pranayama. I love this. Like, I feel like we're in someone's house. So um, uh, back to the text. We're studying a text called the Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing In and Out. Um, when the Buddha had his experience of awakening under the tree in his early 30s, um, this was the practice that he says he was doing. This practice of Anapanasati. Okay. Also, an interesting note is that uh, when the Buddha's son turned 14, his name was Rahula. If any of you are looking for a child's name, it's a really nice name. Um, uh, when the Buddha's son turned 14, uh, the Buddha taught him meditation, and this is what he taught his son. So if you have a 14-year-old who's interested in meditation, uh, this is what you can teach them. Yeah. So, um, and then you'll never see them again. <laughs> okay, so. <clears throat> but, but actually, when you're a teenager, I wish when I was a teenager that somebody taught me in this kind of detail. Um, I, in the last couple of years, I've been teaching teenagers a lot. And uh, every time we get ready for the workshop and these teens start coming in and their awkward gait and so on, just my heart, I just always feel so open to them, you know. And uh, they're a very strange species. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I teach them mindfulness of breathing. And uh, we talk a lot about how to apply that practice in different areas of their life. And, um, and I always say to their parents, it's so important that you have a practice. Because the way teens learn mindfulness is by how it's modeled by their parents. So whenever parents come to me and say, oh, I've got to teach meditation to my kid, I say, why don't you come on a retreat? <laughs> So that you're modeling it uh, in, in the home. So, anyways. Um, we ended yesterday talking about the first jhana. Do you remember this? Um, so I wanted to read to you from another text, the Buddha's description of the first two jhanas. Okay? Which usually people think are very esoteric. But listen to how the Buddha describes them. There is a case where a person quite withdrawn from sensual craving and withdrawn from unskillful actions, in other words, you're not craving after pleasure and you're not doing anything unskillful, enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by thought and evaluation. Okay? So the first level of concentration, there's rapture, there's joy, they're withdrawn from um, craving and unskillful actions. Um, but this part's important. It's accompanied by thought and evaluation. So you might check in going, oh, this is pretty good. Maybe I should breathe a little more. Maybe I need to like open my eyes, right? So, so 
there's very much a kind of dialogue going on, but it's it's just calm. Okay. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Did, did you follow that? I know that's confusing. So you take laundry, or you take bath uh, flake, uh, what are they called, the soap flakes? Um, you knead them together in a brass bowl, of course. Everybody should have a brass bowl in their laundry room. <laughs> and, um, and then you sprinkle water on them, so the water permeates the ball, but it permeates in such a way where nothing drops out. No water drops out. Um, the, the monk permeates, suffuses, and fills the whole body with joy and rapture born of withdrawal. Nothing in the entire body is unpervaded by this joy or rapture. Isn't that so beautiful? Okay, so you're in a meditative experience. You're noticing some rapture, noticing some joy, and most of the time we just miss it because we don't know to look for it. Okay, But when you notice it, you kind of stay with your breathing and you let it unfold like to the side. Because if you try and put it right in front of you, then you want joy to happen. And as soon as you want joy to happen, there's wanting, and you kill it. We've all had this experience before with happiness. The example I like to use sometimes is, um, have you ever been to a party? You never know with yoga students. <laughs> you go to a party, and then maybe it's your party, okay? So you're at your own party. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. It's your birthday. You're at your party, and everything's going really well. And then you say to yourself, I'm so happy. And then as soon as you say it, it gets kind of sticky. And then it starts to fade away. Because there was happiness... And then the self comes in and says, oh, it's happening to me. And you kill it. Do you know this experience? Yes. You kill it. Because suddenly, I'm happy. But a moment ago, it was just happiness. So, then the Buddha goes on and says, <clears throat> Furthermore, by stilling the thoughts and evaluations. So remember the last, so the first jhana... It's accompanied by thought and evaluation. In the second jhana, as you still thoughts and evaluation, you enter the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of composure, free of thought and evaluation. This creates, I love this term, internal assurance. Internal assurance. In other words, trust. This creates trust. Just like a lake, so imagine this, just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, no inflow of water from the south, no inflow of water from the west, and no water coming from the north, and the skies periodically supplying abundant showers, 
So there's a cool fount of water welling up from within the lake, suffuses the lake, fills it with cool water, with no part of the lake unpervaded by cool water. Even so, the monk permeates and pervades and suffuses the whole body with rapture born of composure. In other words, pleasure. Okay? So this might sound kind of crazy to you. But, but because maybe you're just at the stage where it's like, oh God, my knee just hurts so much. <laughs> you know? But listen to what he's saying. And remember that these things don't always happen in order. You're following the breath, following the breath. The, the loops of thinking just fade momentarily to the back. You've all had this experience already. You're sitting following the breath, and for a moment, you're not caught in a thought. Right? We've all had this. Okay. But then, he's saying, if you keep staying there, you may enter the first jhana, which is some joy. Okay. It might be even very small. And then he says, if when the joy happens, you don't start thinking about it, you don't get in your own way, then pleasure arises. And it's an interesting pleasure because it's like a lake that's filling itself from within. It's a pleasure that's not related to receiving something from an object. It's kind of interesting. Because most of the time when we associate uh, uh, a, a, a mental state that's, or a physical state that's connected with pleasure, that's a, accompanied by pleasure... It's usually the pleasure that comes from the espresso. It comes from the chocolate. It comes from a hug. It comes from affection. It comes from beauty. And we experience this pleasure. But the Buddha is saying something interesting here, is that actually, when you settle the mind, there's a pleasure that comes up like a spring that doesn't seem to come from the outside. And I think... For me, this really challenges some of the notions of Western psychology that assume that the unconscious is a whirlpool or a cesspool of destructive emotions. I think a lot of us have this unconscious assumption about the unconscious. That like deep in the back of the psyche, there are monsters, there are negative emotions... <laughs> And they're going to eat you. Don't we all have some, some of these assumptions? Yeah. And the Buddha seems to be saying here that it seems like in the background, when the mind settles, what's actually there as the fundamental state is pleasure. A pleasure, a safety, a love that doesn't seem to be connected to anything from outside. Now, we shouldn't all believe this. Maybe this is not our experience. Um, but it's an interesting map. And the thing about a map is it might say to you, oh, that's this thing I've experienced. Or it might say, hey, I've always been in this territory here, but I've never really explored that territory over there. So the map is really helpful for sketching out. Or It's like someone was a cartographer and really mapped out for us all these different mental states and now we can go and kind of explore so 
If you go to your uh, to page, uh, what page are we on? <clears throat> so we're opening to the breath, and whatever's happening, we're not refusing it. We're not refusing it. When you refuse unwanted feelings, um, you're bound by them. When you try and numb yourself to what you're actually feeling, you're imprisoned by that same feeling. So the Buddha is suggesting that we're calming whatever's arising in the body using the breath. Then we may experience some joy. Then, sorry, what page? Then, yeah. Uh, Then, um, breathing in and out joy, we then get to section six. He trains himself. I breathe in pleasure, and I breathe out experiencing pleasure. The word for pleasure is sukha, which is actually where you get the English word sugar. Um, it means sweet. Okay. Um, I, if I was translating this, I would probably translate it as balance. Because pleasure, I think, is a little problematic sometimes in how we think about pleasure. It, it, it's an experience of feeling balanced. It's the pleasure of feeling balanced. And... Um, <clears throat> That balance is really important because it creates a mindfulness that's relaxed and open and not amped up. Okay? Like, for example, does any, has anyone here met someone who first gets into meditation and they want to be so awake and they walk around all the time like... <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it's like you can't relate to them. Because w- when you see them, they like look into your eye <laughs> and they really hold your gaze a long time and it's like, it's so creepy. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. It's always like the news. It's usually young men. <laughs> it's a young man's issue. <laughs> um, I'm sure I haven't gone through that phase. <laughs> Um, it's also, it's like in psychotherapy, you know, sometimes this is something that happens a lot with psychotherapists where they're sitting with a client and they're so present that they're too present and they're too present and it actually infringes on the space of the client because, uh, there's an expectation there that, um, isn't spoken about that the client should either meet the therapist at that level or that the client has to uh, provide something for the therapist's expectation. So this is a really important thing. So what we're saying is that when you're awake, it's as natural as a tree. When you're awake, you're being yourself. So some people hear some of these teachings and like, every second I have to be. And you will be a completely fried person. (laughs) Okay. So if you feel like that, 
Um, go watch Girls. <laughs> do you have that show here? Yeah. I don't know. Go watch. What shows do people watch? <laughs> What's that? No, girls. You watch Girls? Yeah. Okay. Go watch Girls. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that. but Okay. So... Um, <clears throat> Then, when you're feeling this pleasure, you can use that space to start calming mental fabrications. Okay? Chitta sankara or chitta sankara. So that the mind will start producing mental fabrications. Do you know what those are? <laughs> You've been looking at them all day. Um, and you're going exp- to use this space of calmness to settle mental fabrications to settle mental fabrications so what I like about this sequence is it makes it seem like the jhanas are these cool things that happen and then right after the jhanas you're back into working mental fabrications again so it kind of uh, yes It's not even necessarily the elaboration. It's just the pattern of thought that arises. You're going to comment. You're going to comment. You're going to be aware of it. You're going to comment. So this is really helpful because it's reminding us that whatever's happening in our life, you can comment by bringing this awareness to it by bringing presence, by bringing mindfulness to what's happening. You can calm what's arising. Before, we were talking about calming your reactivity. Now we're talking about calming the mental formation that's arising even before the reactivity shows up. So anything, I mean, like for example, um, disappointment. Disappointment is one that's so hard to sit with, isn't it? When we're disappointed. Most of the time when we're disappointed, we can't sit with it. We just try and get out of it as fast as possible. How many relationships do we end prematurely because we can't tolerate disappointment? Someone disappoints us, it's over. And there's no ability to tolerate someone's disappointment so we prematurely kill the relationship. Why? Because a sangskara arose, a pattern arose, and we weren't able to come. We weren't able to be present with it. And then what happens after is worse. We end the relationship, and then we build a whole story about everything they did wrong. <laughs> and then if we have friends that don't agree with us, we stop seeing them too. And then our world gets smaller and smaller. We practice uh, yoga, and then we only will practice yoga with people who practice yoga like we do. And then we'll only practice yoga in centers in our lineage with teachers that have been certified. And then the teachers tell us we should be vegetarian, and then we're vegetarian. 
And then they say we should be vegan. So we're vegan. And then they say we should be raw. So then we just eat raw. And then we can't travel anymore. <laughs> and then we, when we get invited to people's house for dinner, it's so stressful for them. Because you can't go visit your parents anymore because they can't cook raw cashew stuff. <laughs> and you tell yourself, I'm getting more flexible. <laughs> but actually, your whole world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it shrivels up. And the next thing you know, you have no friends. This is also a young man's problem. <laughs> so what the practice is teaching us is that um, every moment is a great gift, the sacred. And so we're going to bring an attitude of sacredness to whatever's happening. It's okay. And it doesn't mean we don't do anything, but it means before we take action, uh, we're able to experience what it is that's really going on. And maybe we never get it pure. Maybe we never get a pure experience. It's always bias. It's always subjective. But we can notice when we're really reactive and we're able to not believe every single thing we think. And then some compassion can arise. So... One of the things that I want to work on today in the meditation practice is um, these two sections. Is using the breath in such a way that when we feel some pleasure, we allow it in. Sometimes our attention is so... Not sometimes. Let me say that again. Our attention is so geared towards noticing the negative that when pleasure's arising in the practice, we miss it because we're organized to see the negative. In neuroscience, this is called the negativity bias of the brain. So the way you interrupt the negativity bias of our attention is to just notice what's happening right now. And when there's pleasure, to let it in, to let in the pleasure. So this is what I want you to have in your mind when you practice today. Is, as you're noticing the breath, if there's some part of the breath cycle that's pleasurable, really take it in. And the Buddha is saying, you can take it in to such an extent that it's like a ball of soap that has no water dripping out of it. But the pleasure is so fully in your body that it can grow and grow and grow and grow. But, if you then say, I want this pleasure to grow, it stops. <laughs> Doesn't this seem like a terrible game? <laughs> yeah. Can I ask something about what you are talking about right now? Yes. That we, are, uh, that we have preferences. It seems like yes. we should invite pleasure but stay out of anger. Um, which is then we are immediately in a way of that we, we are evaluating pleasure mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and mm, that we sort of have preferences which is very nice not to have. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? It's like 
-hmm. going for the good stuff and keep the bad stuff out. Uh -huh. But maybe it's all all there and and none of it is good and none of it is bad. It's just there for us to experience. <clears throat> there are bad states. Yeah. There's three of them. Greed, anger, and confusion. Um, usually I translate the last one as boredom. It's a bit of a stretch. Greed. Anger. Yeah, so usually the last one is translated as confusion or delusion, but I translate it as boredom. I just think it's more contemporary. It's a bit of a stretch, but try it. Um, and the problem with especially the first two greed and anger, and why we are making a judgment call, is that there are states of mind that create stress. There's states of mind that create a lot of stress. And so, this is a little bit different from Western psychology, where you know, greed and anger, you want to feel them, you want to make friends with them, and so on. Here we're trying to say that, that when we feel anger and when we feel greed, um, we're actually not going to entertain them. We're going to come back to our breath. We're not going to entertain them. Um, so, there are other models of working with it. I'm just trying to speak within this model that we're studying. Next year I might come and we use a completely different model where we do something else with anger. But let's just try this on because it's a cross-cultural idea which is that in our culture, we really value anger, actually. We value anger as a tool. But in this perspective, um, anger is not something we want to identify with at all. Or greed. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the same as shutting out. No, we don't shut it out. We just, we calm it, and we stay with our breathing. We calm it, and we stay with our breathing. There's anger. I see you. I'm going to take care of you by staying with my breathing. And I'm not going to get into the whole thing about who I'm angry at, why I'm angry. Yeah. So you, you stay with the energy but drop the storyline kind of? Uh, you don't even stay with the energy. Okay. So you drop the storyline and the energy of it. Oh, okay. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I would also say that in sitting meditation, anger doesn't usually come up as strong as it does in communication. Yeah. So our levels of anger that skyrocket in relationships don't skyrocket the same way when we're in meditation practice. It comes up, and it bubbles maybe, and it's fiery, but it's not like... I've never seen someone get up and yell at themselves <laughs> in meditation practice. You do Osho meditation? What's that? In Osho you do. Yeah, Osho. We'll save that for another conversation. Um, so, let's just go over the technique again. The breath is natural, inhaling and exhaling totally natural. Then, when you're inhaling and exhaling, and the breath is natural, 
you'll start to feel that it's sort of the whole body that's breathing. Not just the nostrils or just the belly, but just you're aware of the whole body. And then sensations will come. Everyone's felt this already. And they come in constellations, like they come in patterns. Patterns change, they move. And we're using the breath just to create calmness like a blanket. Soft, calm blanket around the sensations. Okay, that's it. And then we're going to find a place in our breathing or in our body where there's pleasure. Just let it happen. Okay? Don't say, I need to feel pleasure now. Nothing will happen. But just notice your breathing and see if you can find where in your breathing there's some pleasure. And the Buddha is suggesting, may not be true, but he's suggesting that if you start to focus on that pleasure and you, you, you let your breath absorb that pleasure, it will start to spread in your body. And he's suggesting that it can spread so much that no part of the body is left out. And I don't know if this is true. Maybe this is true. So let's explore and see if this is true. So we're going to do this lying down. <coughs> what happens if someone next to you falls asleep? Yeah. And if you fall asleep and someone touches you, are you going to be upset? No, you're going to thank your partner. Thank you so much for waking me up. And you can just, you know, kiss them on the cheek or something like that. Um, Yes. Yeah, no. That's not what the Buddha is saying. <laughs> Everyone seems to be saying the same thing. Feel your anger, let it go. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is as it's arising, you're calming it with your breathing. You're not trying to feel it. No. I know this is totally different than how all of us think about anger. You're not going to try and feel the anger. The anger is coming, and as soon as it starts coming... It makes it seem like everyone's really angry. Or I bet you anger's not really coming up for most people when they're sitting. But anger's coming. You're immediately using the breath to calm it down. Yeah. Hmm. But the good feelings. Are, yeah, I mean, if you treat it like objective, the anger as an objective feeling, should I do the same with the good feelings? Okay. Uh, like with joy. I, I, sh I should not go into joy either. Well, what did he... I just read it. Yeah, but I mean... He says you should absolutely go into joy and you should absolutely go into pleasure. Okay. Yeah. But not want to stay there. Yeah, no, you don't... If you say, I want to stay yeah, here, then it's going to die right away. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're really learning how to work with your mind. Yeah. Is like, how can I calm something without pushing it away? How can I generate something without clinging to it? Yeah, there you go. Right? How can I love somebody without... <laughs> tightening around them? How can I not like somebody without creating defensiveness in myself? How can I uh, not want to be around somebody and not have any intention to cause them harm? How can I care deeply about someone 
and not cling to them? Well, I don't know. And you don't know. So that's why we're doing this, is because we're learning how to train the mind to be open and subtle, to be really stable, and to learn that some things that come up are worth calming right away. And that it might not be repression if you do this. Crazy idea. And that there's some states like pleasure and joy that we don't know how to relate to because we're so into the negative emotions that sometimes joy and pleasure arise. We don't know what the hell to do with them, especially if you're a therapist. Like, what do I do with this? I'm happy. (laughs) 